Uh, if you want to turn in your Bible to Psalm 64, that's where we'll be studying today. While we uh, turn there, I want us to picture, it's actually a situation I've been in several times where uh, you go to open up your Bible to read that day, and it might be for the Bible reading plan that we've been going through, or it might just be you haven't read the Bible in a couple of days, and you open up to the Psalms. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Psalms, it sounds... Well, the word you, we know the camber and the tone, and it will. There'll be lines like, "The Lord is our rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge." The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring to the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear Him. Well, what I'm doing is I'm just reading one of the verses that comes each time I flip the page. And sometimes that's what reading the Psalms feels like, because we know kind of what the words are, but they just sound kind of the same to what we've read before. Well, when we study Psalm 64 today, I hope that it won't seem like that sort of Bible reading, but... I also hope that we'll grab some tools so that our eyes don't glaze over in our own personal Bible study of the Psalms and so that we don't just start reading the Psalms and then notice we're at the bottom of the page, but our mind hasn't really been in the scriptures. So that's the goal for today. So starting with Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O God, and my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aim bitter speech as their arrow, to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, We are ready with a well-conceived plot. For the inward thoughts and heart of a man are deep. But God will shoot them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. So they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake their head. Then all men will fear. And they will declare the work of God. And will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in him. And all the upright in heart will glory. So Psalm 64 asks us a question. And it asks, do the blameless have any course of action when people scheme against them? One basic thing that we should think of when reading a psalm like Psalm 64, really any of them, is that psalms are emotional songs. And so the best way to start preventing us from just glossing over the psalm is to try to insert us into the emotion of the moment. And 
here we see David's emotion right off the bat. He's in trouble. He's crying out to God. He's asking for his life to be preserved. But we start noticing something different about this psalm than from others. In this one, psalm, we see words like voice or counsel or tongue. And all of these are talking about people's words. There are nine words that specifically were, refer to this, and there's others that are implied referring to people's words. And so in 10 verses, we have over 10 references to peop how people talk. And so Psalm 64 is addressing people's words. And we see that a large part of it is that the evildoers are bringing their words to bear on David. So we want to put ourselves in the emotion of the text. And when it paints this picture, like many psalms do, we want to ask, have I been here before, or do I know someone else who has been here? For example, Psalm 1, it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the sea of sinners, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And we can right off the bat see a picture of someone who is doing those things and ask ourselves, have I been there or is someone that I know there currently? And that will start to unfold the picture. And so looking through the first six verses of this psalm, we see that David is in need we see that people are sharpening their tongues as swords. They're not just an instrument that would whack him, but one that feels as though it would bring upon death. And they shoot from concealment. They feel safe while they're making this attack. They talk to themselves. They leave snares. There's traps in their words that you might stumble into. Has anyone ever laid a trap with their words and you find out after the fact? But if you know beforehand that they're laying traps with their words, it brings up the, uh, the tension whenever you have a conversation with them. Furthermore, at the end we see David's conclusion about them that is kind of the furthest down that David goes in the psalm. He says, for the inward thought and heart of man are deep. He's in a situation that feels as though there is no recourse and no hope. Now, we could, off the bat, because we might, we're, we're trying to remember that Psalms are, they're teaching us how to meditate and pray, right? Psalm 1 says, how blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. And it's serving as the introduction to this whole book. So when I come to Psalm 64, I'm learning that this is teaching me how I'd meditate in this situation, how David did. And we see the result of his meditation. But it would be easier for us to say right off the bat in verse 1, well, I know that, well, when David cries out for God, he's not actually, he's not, doing anything wrong to his enemies, so that's what I'm supposed to do. But it's, like, for example, he, he doesn't take any wrong action. 
And we could just, you could say to any problem that someone might have, you know, you should just trust on God and rely on him. But they can sound empty if that's all you say, right? Well, one of the ways that we can kind of put ourselves more into this situation is to realize if this is teaching us how to meditate, it's teaching us how to meditate because our initial reaction in this situation is not meditating on God's word and is not the, our initial mindset won't be to follow God. I'll give you an example. My brother taught me something very young. I, I was thinking, I was trying to narrow down when I learned this lesson and I'm 100% certain it was in first grade. And I remember being on a playground and knowing I had to employ this lesson so that I would be okay. There had been, before school had started, there had been some sort of an argument. And I know I was not on the right. Um, that person might not have been on the right. I don't even know what happened. But I knew that I could be in trouble. But my brother had noticed something and he had taught it to me. He said, if you go to the teacher or the parent first, but you don't just go to try to get the other person in trouble because parents and teachers don't like that. They pick up on that. What you do instead is you go to them and you say that you, you put it off as you're, you're the victim, you're worried, you even are apologetic about the situation. And because you're apologetic about the situation, then when the other person goes to the teacher or the parent and accuses you of doing something wrong, which you did, the teacher or parent takes your side every single time. <laughs> As you can tell, with two brothers who knew this at an early age, my, our parents had a lot of fun. But, <laughs> but that was first grade, right? And so that was our initial way of how we would respond. And as we got, I mean, that, that piece of advice, that saved me through a lot of things through middle school and high school, but not the correct way. Um, and it shows that our initial reaction can be very much contrary. In fact, what I was doing was the very thing that I thought they were doing. I was laying a trap because I thought they were going to use their words to attack. So I'd get ahead of the game, I'd lay my own traps, and then they'd lose. That is not what we are to do. That is the opposite of Psalm 64. And so when we see that, we can now see where maybe our mind would initially go is contrary to what it is. And then we would also want to have a positive example. And Psalms are... They're meditative songs about God. And if that's the case, I'm going to see this aspect echoed elsewhere through the Bible. And so when I'm reading a psalm, and now I got a picture of what is happening in the psalm, I have that. Now I look elsewhere. And I look elsewhere in the Bible to see where that's echoed out. One example, and you don't have to turn there, but is 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. And Peter's actually talking about Jesus. And 
if we think of Jesus, we realize that this is a problem he actually dealt with a lot. Um, how many times does it say in the Gospels that the Pharisees tried to get him in a trap? They'd ask him questions, and their goal was to ensnare him, and they were predominantly using words. Well, First Peter takes the example of Jesus and applies it to people who were suffering. In verse 20 it says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do it with, uh, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. So off the bat, we kind of start to see a parallel to Psalm 64 in that David is not in the blame here, and he's going to God rather than resorting to other means. Furthermore, Peter writes. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Notice there it says that he kept entrusting to himself to him who judges righteously. Oftentimes we see in the Psalms, David will ask for God to judge them righteously. And so this starts to show us a parallel between Jesus, and so we can start saying, well, let me set off this, my, how I would initially respond to a situation like this, and let me take instead the positive example, and I can root all of that in Psalm 64. So continuing to Psalm 64 verse seven, this is where David pivots, because we just went down to the darkest part where human hearts are very deep, who can know them. And that's the darkest part, and that's where we feel most hopeless is when it feels as though there's no recourse. But God will shoot them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded, so they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake the head. Right here, David's doing a lot of contrasting to what happened before. I think the most, the most interesting one is earlier, it says that they hold fast to an evil way, but then David is showing that this evil way is exactly what cracks back on them. And that's what God, the method that God uses. It continues, then all men will fear and will declare the work of God and will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord, will take refuge in him, and the upright in heart will glory. These are promises that David has arrived on through his meditations, and they're promises that we can hold on to. 
in a situation where people's words are being aimed at us, there can be times where it even seems like maybe your coworkers, they know you're Christian or you've been witnessing to them, but what's the best way that someone's going to aim their words at you, but maybe say that you're self-righteous, even though you're not? Or they'll morph something about you, and then maybe people won't listen to you. It could make you worried about your job, and even to a greater degree, it could make you worry about your testimony to unbelievers. But what David uh, says is that how God deals with the issue, at the end of the day, people will look in glory at this. And we will see this through a couple more stories that we'll see through the Bible. But there's also a further promise in this is when there's always that opportunity when you're living with people or working with them to say some word about someone that just, it gets back, right? If, if people, if there's drama going on, and then there's just a situation where you can say something about the person who's slandering you that seems to be the right call in the sense of it will make people trust you. And you could say, well, I know I need to trust God, but it's kind of like saying, you know, I pray that the drive to work is safe, but I still have to drive the vehicle, right? So let me say this bad word at them, and that's the solution. The problem with that is that it's not ultimately trusting the way that God's working, and it's not trusting the, the, these promises. And so when we're in a situation of Psalm 64, not only do we have the, the picture, but then we also have the picture of what it looks like after the fact. And that's a promise that you can now hold on to in those areas. An example, another example that we can just remember of, and this is another way to start linking your psalms to other parts of scripture is, you can start thinking of different people. We thought of Jesus. Well, we can also think of Moses. Moses was called the humblest person on earth. But so many times, he was also approached by people's words against him. The sons of Korah brought words against him, and yet God ended up dealing with them. And so then, now that I can see a little bit of parallel, Whenever I'm in that story of Moses, I can, maybe I'll remember Psalm 64 and I'll think about how that relates. Ultimately, I think the Psalms give us a couple different tools. And before we go to another example, I'd like to focus on how this tool can be used. For example, the, if you hold on to a promise like Psalm 64, you can look back to Psalm 1. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, Pastor Greg taught on Psalm 1 in Sunday school. And one of the part aspects of Psalm 1 is that it's kind of, it's an overview of the book in a sense. 
and it has promises in it. It gives us the same characters that we just saw in Psalm 64, and it gives descriptions about them. It gives descriptions about the blessed man who's meditating on God's word day and night, and it gives us descriptions of the wicked and shows how they're like chaff. When I personally have seen Psalm 64 in my own life, then I can link that back to uh, Psalm 1 because I can see how God has blessed me from following his word. Not that that's why I did it, but I can also see that any of the times that I'm tempted to follow the way of the wicked the way that people would counsel you to, like my brother with his advice, it doesn't lead to anything good, even though in the short term it might seem like a success. And that further gives me a picture of the wicked like chaff. And as I understand these individual psalms throughout the book, and I see their work in my life personally, I can then when I read Psalm 1, it has more meaning behind it because I see all of those things and how they've interacted in my life. A lot of, uh, diff a lot of different trades have different tools. Like cook uh, cooks have spices and photographer or artists have colors and shapes and textures. And then a sports team has different plays they use. And there's kind of two different types, right? There's the spice that a cook might use in almost every dish. I worked for a restaurant and they, uh, the, the chef guy, he, he had this secret combination of spices. And he never told me all of them because they were his secret spices. And uh, he would mix them all together, and then he put it a little bit on every single dish. But then there's also spices that might be a spice you like, but it doesn't go on every dish. You think, well, but then as soon as you're like, there's something missing on this. Oh, this spice. Or it could be sports plays. There's the bread and butters that sports teams uses. This play over and over again but then they have specific special plays that they pull out every once in a while. Well, for the tradesmen, I have a box, and it's my favorite tool. And I'm not just saying that because Pastor Greg helped me make it. I'm saying it because it is my favorite tool as a welder. For when you weld, they have these benches that are set up to put the material on, and they're like this low. Well, as a welder, you want your you want to be about this close to whatever you're welding or working with, to your eye. Well, that means I always have to be bent over. But with a box, I would sit on that one to three hours every day, total, maybe more. And I would just sit on the box, and it made everything easier. It made me faster. It made my work quality go up. And it's just a box. And that's what Psalm 1 could be, in the sense of it daily applies in every which way. And it, as I see more uses for it, it ends up having its applications. But then what is Psalm 64 but the tool or the spice 
that we don't always need. I, most of you probably are not in a situation where you always need a psalm like Psalm 64. You're not always in a situation where people are slandering you for days and it seems as though everything could be ruined because of it. But in the situation that you need it, it's the perfect tool. I, my favorite tool I don't even own. It's called a come along. It pulls things together. You take a heavy duty chain in it and it can pull several tons of weight and it pulls it together. But if I need a push material out, I don't need it. I've only used the tool once. But whenever you need it, it saves you time, it makes everything better. And that is, in a sense, what Psalm 64 is. And so when we're studying through the Psalms, we often, another reason why our eyes glaze over is because we read a Psalm like this and we go, okay, great, and then we read the next one. But by remembering what it's teaching us on how to meditate in these situations, we will have a tool that when those situations come, we have something to lean on in God's word. But the question might be, if I never use this tool, how will I even remember I have it? Or how will I know how to use it correctly when the time comes? And the best way one of the best ways to do that is what we have done already, is linking it throughout the Bible to where it applies. Like where Peter get, tells us that Christ is our example to follow in suffering. And where we have a long story of Moses where we might be able to see this psalm kind of throughout the whole area. But there's one more that is probably the most closely linked to Psalm 64. This is found in Ezra. Now, in Ezra, the Israelites had been sent into exile. The distance of exile would be if we all walked to Portland, Oregon, and or Seattle, Washington, and then we went up into Canada. That's how far away it was. And they had been there for 70 years. They come back to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And, but while they were gone, other people inhabited the land. So now there's people surrounding them who are enemies of them. They don't know who to trust. But these enemies say, oh, we'll help you build the temple. They tell them not to, they don't want their help. And now these enemies are upset and end up plotting against them with words. It says in Ezra 3 that they hired counsel to go frustrate their plans because they needed supplies, they needed funding. And so now with counsel all the way up in the capital of Persia, um, they end up uh, frustrating the council and the temple building slows. And then when a new king comes in place, they lie about what the Israelites are doing. They say they're mounting a rebellion. And the king says, okay, don't let them build the temple. And so now through all of these words and crafty lies and traps, they have been stopping the building of the temple. The building of the temple stops. 
Haggai ends up stirring up the hearts of these people to build the temple again. But what happens is that those same enemies are still there. And there's a new king. His name's Darius. And so they send a letter back up to King Darius, and King Darius looks into the matter. But this time, King Darius sees that they were actually commissioned to build the temple. So in Ezra 6, Darius gives a decree to these enemies who have been using their words. And the context is a, a rebellion of small Israel they could have just sent an army and wiped it off the map. These words were, were like swords and arrows that could kill because Israel could be no more. But the people had to trust in God and his promises to them. And so King Darius makes a decree. It says that he tells them, leave this work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Wow. Darius just says, oh, it's good. Furthermore, he says, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for the elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the enemies. So all their taxes, all their money that they would end up having to pay, well, now is funding the project they were trying to stop. Furthermore, it says, whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, lambs, burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, anointing oil, as the priests of Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail. And here we see that the evil plotting that they had ended up turning right back on them, just as Psalm 64 said. This evil way that they held on to, God used it to make them fund the temple. And Darius is so serious about this that he commands that anyone who does not follow this is to be put on a stake from their own house. And so we see here that the enemies who were going against God's people, who were following God's word, they end up in this story of Ezra that takes place over three chapters, they end up having their own plans thwarted. And Israel didn't say anything. Their only response whenever they were asked what they were doing is they said, well, we're building the temple because God said for us to do it and King Cyrus said to do it. And God had it worked out. So now I hope that you all have a psalm, Psalm 64, that you can go to in those times where it's the right tool. But I hope also we can see that different areas that we can use the same type of study to unlock other psalms. Mainly that we see that psalms are emotional. If we put ourselves into them, we'll understand it more fully in the situation. We'll ask, have I been here before? So that we can finish that task. And then when we're putting ourselves in that situation, we want to remember 
that sometimes we're not going to do the right thing. Just like my example of my brother's advice, we have ways that we're used to going about that are sinful. And the Psalms are teaching us how to properly meditate in situations that we otherwise would not. So that Psalm 64. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for uh, the Psalms and just thank you for the uh, teaching that it gives us. I pray that we might be able to uh, understand your will for us and your ways more fully. In your name we pray.